well. Well, guys, on to the message. Uh, great image there. Great image. You know, after the fall uh, recorded in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin and, and God approaches them, sort of corners them because they're running away and they're hiding. And because of this, the sin, uh, God spoke words about what the implications would be for them. And when he spoke to Satan, uh, he made a promise he said that there'd be opposition between Satan and, and uh, humanity, essentially. But he also said that one day the seed of the woman would bruise Satan on the head. That uh, in doing so, he would be wounded in the heel, but he would be bruised on the head. And that's the image you see there. And it's interesting because in the context, it doesn't say that Adam's descendant, would crush Satan. It says Eve's descendant, specifically Eve's descendant, not Adam's, which is interesting. The seed of the woman would become the savior of the world. What you'll see, you read the genealogies in the Old Testament, you read the genealogies in Matthew and Luke as well, you generally see the male lineage so that we know the promise to Abraham continues down through his generations, Isaac and Jacob. It goes down to David and Solomon goes through their generations. We see almost always the male lineage, but Genesis 3.15, it's called the first gospel, the proto-evangelium. Um, it's about a, the seed of the woman. It's identified as the seed of the woman, that the woman is going to have a particular son. He's going to come from the male line. It's not saying that, but he's going to be identified specifically with the woman. And women serve key roles throughout the Bible. We're going to look at one of those specifically this morning. We're in the series Heroes and Villains, and we're going to be looking this morning at Sarah, Abraham's wife. We looked at Abraham last time. We talked about, remember, faith is the key in this whole series, faith or faithfulness. When we started the series, Jesus is the superhero. He displayed superhero status because he was faithful. And it's not that he was faithful as God the Son with superhuman powers. It's that his example to us was of faithfulness the way you and I can be faithful. And that was the call. And so you'll see a number of women in the scriptures. And this morning, we're looking at Sarah in that same thing about faithfulness. Just like Abraham was faithful in action, worship, and believing, basically we say, see the same thing with his wife, with Sarah. So this is the eighth message in this Heroes and Villains series. And as I said, we'll look at Sarah. I do want to point this out again. There's a, there's a tendency that we have to try to be better people, to perform at a higher level, to be better. It's, it's a performance uh, version of life that, that can miss the mark. We're looking at heroes, sort of conceptually, this comes out of Hebrews 11, where God talks about the folks that have followed him faithfully, and we said that's sort of what we want to be like. But there's a tendency for us to look at those humans and say we want to be like them. So I'm not as good a person. I want to be a better person. I want to be like them. And it's possible for us to really miss the mark if we're not careful. So we know there's only one superhero. The superhero is Jesus. So Jesus is always the model. So these people mirror something of Christ's faithfulness. And so that's why they're set as examples. But the whole deal for you and I, as believers, as we have an old sinful nature that never does right, never will do right. 
and we have a new nature that's through our rebirth in Christ, and we have the Holy Spirit. So we're not trying to get better. We're not trying to be rules keepers. What we're trying to do is emulate Christ's walk ultimately by walking in the Spirit faithfully. Or Paul says in Galatians, faith working through love. We want to make sure this isn't about rules keeping. You can keep rules for a while, but what you'll find is generally that thing falls apart pretty short order. So we want to operate out of faith because we love God. Faith working through love, love working through faith. That's the model. So these are examples of people that have gone before us who walked in faithfulness, but guys, none of them did it perfectly. And in fact, one of the things you say, if you remember way back to week one, we said sometimes you'll look at your life and say, I look like the villains in the Bible. Or I look like the downside of the heroes of faith, not the upside. <clears throat> That's common for all of us. So we want to make sure that we're getting this thing right. Christ is the only perfect one. The folks in Hebrews 11, like Abraham and Sarah, they're both there. They're models of aspects of that faithfulness, but none of us ever get this right all the time, right? Okay, so with that caveat, uh, Sarah's faithfulness, if you were here a year or so ago, we did a study through the book of Job. One of the things we pointed out was that Job's wife suffered all the losses Job did, except that last physical affliction of the boils. But she suffered the loss of all her kids and wealth and income and standing. She lost all that as well. It wasn't just Job. And that's true when it comes to the life of Sarah. Last week we said Abraham was faithful in action. And so he gets up and he leaves Ur and he leaves Haran and he comes down and he walks to a place. He doesn't even know where he's going. All of that was not only true of Abraham, but it was also true of Sarah. It's easy to forget that the other half, sometimes the better half of these relationships... They're doing the same thing the hero is. So the wife is always affected in these things, and Sarah was too. So it was Sarah who got up with Abraham and left Ur. And remember, she's leaving her family and her friends, her support groups, if you will, not just Abraham. And she doesn't do it once, she does it twice. She's walking with him. She's taking a long walk to a place she doesn't even know where she's going. The, the same things that were typical of Abraham, faithfulness in action, those same things apply to Sarah as well. Uh, here's something to think about. Here's something to ponder. And, and I'm not even saying this tongue-in-cheek. Um, sex can be an act of faith. Did you know that? Thinking of our Sunday school this morning. And I'm jumping right in here. Think of this. When God promises that Abraham's heir will come through Sarah, he's almost 100 and she's almost 90. And we'll look at this a little bit more. There's this initial incredulity that she can't, this thing can't happen because of her age. And there's a phrase, it says there, um, at this age, so the angels, I'm going to read a text here in a minute, but Sarah hears the promise and she says to herself, at this stage of life, at this late age, shall I have this pleasure? Now, in context, it's clear she's talking about the pleasure of having a son. But it's, it's, if not likely, it's highly possible that at their age, they are no longer having sex anymore as a couple. They're beyond the stage. Remember, they've tried to have kids for a long time, no kids. 
So in this sense, one of the other additional acts of faith, I think, included Abraham and Sarah were having sexual relationships because God said you're going to have a son. So that if, if that intimacy level had stopped, it started again. This is not clear in the text, by the way. I'm a little bit out on a limb, but I just want to say their actions, they had to have sex for that son to come along. Now, sex alone between those two is not going to produce Isaac. We know that, and that's what this whole story is about with Isaac. But even there, they were faithful to continue having sex because God said, you two are going to have a son. If that was going on before, great. If it wasn't, they started again. But that was an act of faith as well. Don't know this for certain. Mike's extrapolating, and I'm glad to say that. So in Hebrews 11, God de describes Sarah's faith this way. By faith, Sarah herself conceived power to conceive. And listen to that. By faith, Sarah received power to conceive. God said you're going to have a son, and it says by faith she believed it, and it was the faith, it was the believing that enabled her to have conception. Now we'll give another side to this in just a minute. Her faith produced power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. That's Yahweh when he shows up with the angels at their tent. Therefore, from one man, Abraham, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. That's a reference to Genesis 15 and God's promise to Abraham. So, so God says you're going to have a son, and this text, Hebrews 11, says Sarah believes. And so God praises her for believing what appeared to be an impossible promise, at least physically. But check this out. Check this out in context. This is from Genesis 18. So the Lord, Yahweh's there with the angels at their tent. The Lord says, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Sarah's listening at the tent. Door behind him. You can kind of see her there in the shadows. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. She doesn't have a menstrual cycle anymore. So Sarah laughed. To herself saying, after I'm worn out, <laughs> I'm old and worn out. My Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? The Lord says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. Now in the story, in the context, there's no question. And by the way, I haven't read the, the part before this. Both Abraham and Sarah stumble in their faith at this declaration. Didn't bring this up last week, but when, when Abraham hears this, Abraham falls on his face, Abraham laughs, and Abraham prays, Oh God, bless Ishmael. It's like, I'm not sure you can pull this off. So would you bless Ishmael instead? And God says, I will bless Ishmael. But the son that I've promised you, and this, this promise from Genesis 15, your seed, the promise, is not through Ishmael, it's through Isaac. It's going to be through Sarah's son, not Hagar's. So Abraham stumbled, and so did Sarah. So isn't this interesting? Think of this. You read the story in Genesis 18, and it's clear she didn't believe it at the, at the beginning. Didn't believe it. Then you read in Hebrews 11, and it says she believed. And through this faith, she had power to conceive. 
do you guys ever find that you hear something either that sounds too good to be true or there's a promise in Scripture that you know is for you because you're a Christian and you just don't lay hold of it or you say it sounds too good? Or maybe for some of us, God has spoken particularly, made it clear that he's going to do something for us. And sometimes you're like, I, I can't get there. I don't believe or I'm not sure I believe. I'm not sure that's really for me. And that's exactly what you have with Sarah initially. If you remember, we talked about Abraham a week ago. Abraham blew it a number of times. We'll reference a couple of those here in a minute. But we asked, the question was, what's he characterized by? Well, what he was characterized by was faithfulness. And that's exactly what you see with Sarah, even though initially she doesn't believe the promise. That's why God chastises her. Hey, is anything too difficult for me? I said it. You think I can't pull this thing off? She doesn't believe initially, but she does later. And then when God refers to her in Hebrews, he doesn't indict her for the initial failure. He praises her for the faith that came. And I love this because I just think there's a lot of time in your life and mine in which our faith is not constant. And you blow it and you don't believe or you act out of disobedience because there's no faith. And it doesn't mean that you can't get up and repent, change your mind, and get back in the game. That's exactly what happened with both Sarah and Abraham. She did not initially have faith. Faith came after this initial response. And then when God looks back on her life, that's what he remembers and that's what he credits her for. So not the first response, but faith did come. Now, we understand Sarah's initial response to the promise of a child. This is from Genesis 18. She says, I'm old and I'm worn out. She's 89 when the promise comes. That's, that's old. And she understands she's past that time of becoming pregnant. And, and this goes back to Genesis 3. So when we think of Isaac's birth, in your mind, do you first think of Isaac's birth to an old man or to an old woman? In other words, in our minds, is the spectacular nature of the birth, is it tied to Abraham or is it tied to Sarah? Biblically, it's tied to Sarah not to Abraham, the miraculous nature of the birth. The miracle of Sarah's conception is not Abraham, it's Sarah. So, Abraham had Ishmael in his mid to late 80s with Hagar. No problem having children for Abraham. Later, after this, when Sarah dies, his second wife Keturah, he has multiple children through her. The problem with getting pregnant is not with Abraham. There's no problem with Abraham reproducing children. Sarah can't have kids. That's the deal. Abraham can. Sarah can't. Listen to this in Genesis 21, 1 and 2. It says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac, the name that God told him to, to call the son. Sarah believed, but that belief would not have been enough. So think about this. Uh, God says you're going to have a son. And, and the Hebrew says she, she was able to conceive because of faith. 
But if she'd believed and God didn't show up, nothing would have happened. You get this? She's past the ability to conceive. It cannot physically happen. God makes a promise. She believes it. They're faithful to have sex. But God in power shows up to give conception. Isaac is a miracle child because a woman who could not get pregnant did. This goes right back to Genesis 3. The seed of the woman is the one that's promised. We know the male line. That's throughout Scripture. But it's the seed of the woman that's the key identifier about the one that would ultimately come, the Messiah. So you remember uh, a week ago we talked about Abraham marching Isaac up Mount Moriah because God said, take your son up there your only son, the son that you love, and offer him there as an offering. And so you've got the father leading his son up the mountain. He's carrying the wood of the sacrifice on his back. And we say, wow, that's a picture, isn't it? That's a picture of God the Father leading Jesus the Son up, frankly, the same geography, not exactly the same spot, but Mount Moriah. Jesus carries the wood of the cross on his back. Guess what? God's foreshadowing. God's giving us a picture of what's to come. Abraham and Isaac. But what do you get with Sarah and Isaac. Well, you get the same thing. You get a woman who couldn't have a child does. That Isaac's birth was a miracle. It was beyond nature. Now, it was natural in that it was a man and a woman, but it was God that gave power for that conception and birth. And when you read in Luke's gospel, you read very similar phrases, similar concept. This is in Luke 1. You remember the setting after the angel Gabriel had been sent Commission from heaven goes down to Zechariah. By the way, this is another miracle birth. Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, they're too old to have kids like Abraham and Sarah. And God says, you're going to have a son. You call him John. He's going to go before my son, the Messiah. And then that same angel goes to this little gal up in the north of the country and says, hey, you're going to have a son. You're going to have the promised Messiah. The seed of the woman is going to come from you. Now, she doesn't, Mary in that story, she, she doesn't doubt the promise. <clears throat> but she does ask, how will this happen? How? What's the means? Because physically it can't happen. And so Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of God will come upon you, just like Sarah. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called the Son of God. We are meant as fully to see in Sarah and Isaac Jesus as we were in Abraham and Isaac. And that a woman who could not possibly physically have had a son did was a picture and a foreshadowing, if you will, of Mary, the seed of the woman, bearing the Savior, the Messiah, promised way back in Genesis 3.15. So God's telling us he's dropping crumbs, if you will, all along the way to remind us that his promise is going to be kept, that a Messiah is coming, and it's going to be identified because a woman that can't give birth is going to. That's Sarah's story and Isaac's as well. So that's big, and that's, that part of the story gets us the foreshadowing of Jesus' birth. Remember, no human father there. That's the difference. No human father. God the Father only. The Holy Spirit comes over and empowers and brings about conception. But one is meant to make us see the other. One is made to, made to remind us that the other is coming. So that's a big deal. 
That's Sarah's faithfulness. So faithful in action along with Abraham, faithful in believing God would fulfill the promise, and he did. I want to, the last point of looking at Sarah and her faithfulness, though, for me, as far as application for us today, is for me the most important. Uh, Jesus has come. There's no more of those promises to be fulfilled as far as the seed of the woman uh, giving birth. Uh, Abraham and, and Sarah did their job. That's sort of a once-in-a-lifetime thing. But this is the place I want to park, at least briefly, just to talk about an aspect of Sarah's faithfulness that doesn't come up in Genesis 18. It doesn't come up in Hebrews 11, but it does come up in 1 Peter 3. In 1 Peter 2, 13, Peter starts a section in his letter in which he's talking about submission to the authorities God puts in our life. It's just like Paul's uh, um, element on the same theme in Romans 13. Submission to authorities. We did a series on this last summer. So he starts saying, if you're a citizen, you submit, you humble yourself and you submit to the authority of government. If you're a servant, you humble yourself in submission to the master. If you're a wife, you submit to your Husband, And this is where we pick up Sarah's faith expressed here. So listen to this, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. I'm bringing this up, by the way, not specifically to address this to women or to wives, though that's the direct application. The whole issue of submission as faithfulness. Submission as an act of faithfulness. This says, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some don't obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see respectful and pure conduct. Don't let your adorning be external, or we might say merely external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle, quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. So specifically, talking to gals here, a gentle, quiet spirit, not demanding, I'm under authority, I appeal to God ultimately for any help I have, therefore I can afford a gentle and quiet spirit. Verse 5, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves with a gentle, quiet spirit. By submitting to their own husbands, and this is where we pick up Sarah, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. This is Sarah's faithfulness in submission. I don't think that's something that we think about routinely. But the Apostle Peter says that Sarah is a model of faith for us in her humble submission to her husband but the theme is broader than that, that you and I are called to exercise faithfulness by humbling ourselves, by submitting to the authorities God has placed in our life. And think about this for just a minute. It's easy to forget the dynamics that are going on in a person's life. So God looks at Sarah and he says, Sarah's a model of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, if you read her story, she's not always gentle and quiet. She's not always. But he, gentle and quiet spirit, and she's a model for this submission to a husband. What kind of a husband did she have, though? So think of this for just a second. Was Abraham a nice guy? I think if we met him today, we'd say, what a nice guy. 
What kind of a husband was he? So this is a guy who not once, but twice, lets other men take his wife into his, their harems, right? In Egypt and in Gerar, Pharaoh and Abimelech. God's, God praises Sarah for submitting to that guy. Is that wild? You know, if she was my daughter and my son-in-law had put her out twice to other men, I'm not sure what my conversation would be like with her about trust or what, what does this look like? You know, that's the guy she's praised for submitting to. That's the one that she faithfully submits, really ultimately to God, right? In the series that we went through, we said, because God ordains all authorities, you can't get away from this biblically, God's sovereign over all things. Nothing can occur in life or death that he doesn't cause or allow. God takes credit for establishing the authorities that exist, Romans 13. So that we said at the end of the day, we're always in submission ultimately to God. Uh, husbands don't always get it right. Clearly Abraham didn't. Masters or employers today don't always get it right. Um, nobody ever gets it all right. But if we're under their authority... It's faithfulness to submit to that authority. And that's exactly why Sarah is praised here, because she's a model of faithfulness under authority that wasn't always benevolent or wasn't always thoughtful. Gals, you've got lots of opportunity in this church to be encouraged with other gals. There's mom-to-moms, there's Titus T's, and there's February women's retreats in which you can be encouraged specifically about things like this gals talking to gals there's opportunities regularly but the message of faithfulness and submission is not relegated to gals only it's to all of us and in fact as we wind down you'll see that this was the epitome of what jesus did so citing sarah's faithfulness as submission for many of us is grating if you talk to people today about submission it is a dirty word submission is a dirty word and also just the whole notion that someone else should have some significant say in how you choose to live your life because in our day we're saying look i make my own rules i make my own choices we're becoming more and more a lawless nation and world and so when you talk about faithfulness and submission you're arguing against the flow of all of the culture and yet this is exactly what you see was typical of jesus so we say it's particularly important to understand that Sarah's faithfulness in submission is ultimately not a female thing. It's a Christ-like thing. And this is where you see, this is a reminder, back to week one, this is a reminder of some of the ways Jesus expressed faithfulness that you and I can today as well. That we can model Jesus' kind of faithfulness. That's what makes heroes of faith in the same ways he did, and specifically in submission to authorities. Jesus' example as faithfulness in submission to authorities. So in Luke 2, and this is mind-bending, Jesus lived submissively to Mary, his mom, and Joseph, his stepdad. Now noodle on that. You know, when he comes back from Jerusalem, he's been in the temple, he was absent for three days, they find him again. They say, man, you worried us. And he's like, well, you should have known I'd be in my father's house but the text comes he says he comes back and he submitted himself to his father and his mother this is god this is god the son on earth 
And he's saying, yes, mom, go get the pitcher of water. Or yes, dad, go get the saw or whatever. God the Son on earth is submitting to two fallen, fragile human beings, imperfect human beings, and God the Son is doing that to parents as a very knowledgeable 10 to 12-year-old. It's crazy. In Matthew 3, Jesus lives submissives to God's call through John the Baptist. You remember, this is interesting too, you remember God says that there's going to be a voice in the wilderness that will prepare the way for the Messiah, and it's John the Baptist. And so John's out in the wilderness. He's not in the temple. God's man is out in the wilderness calling God's people out of the temple precincts that are filled with ungodliness, calling them out to repentance. So Jesus shows up because, remember, John the Baptist is God's message and God's messenger. Jesus shows up to get baptized with everyone else. And John said, well, I, should, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, this is the way we fulfill all righteousness. You're, you have God's message, and I'm a Jew, and I'm going to respond to God's message, and I'm going to be baptized like everyone else. I'm going to submit to John's baptism. Got Matthew 5, Jesus lives submissive to commands in the law and the prophets. Think of this for a minute. Jesus is the voice of God on Sinai. Jesus is the fiery figure on the scorched earth where he gives Moses the law, and he comes down, the lawgiver comes down, and then he obeys his own law. In faithfulness, he keeps the law. You know, because he was such a radical preacher, he was being accused of, you're breaking the law. And he says, I, I've not come to abolish the law, I'm filling it up. I'm living faithfully and submissively to my father under the law, like a good Jew would. Got John 5, 19. Jesus says, I, the son can do nothing of his own accord, only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. John 5, 19. This, by the way, this is a model for life, <clears throat> not just for Jesus. Jesus is getting up as God's son on earth in our humanity, and he says, every day I'm just about my father's business. I'm constantly looking to see what my father is doing. I'm faithfully submitting myself to what my father is up to. You know, if you and I got up every morning and said, Father, what are you up to today? How can I be a part of what you're doing? That would be a good thing. And most of us are going to get up and go to jobs or work or school or whatever. We, we get that. But within those normal cycles of life, are we looking to see what God is up to and how we can participate in that? In home group, we talk about praying for open doors, to have gospel-centered conversations. But this isn't limited to that. If, if we're spiritually tuned, if we're saying with Jesus, I want to see what my father's up to, the, typically what we'll find is there's all kinds of opportunities we're otherwise unaware of. Jesus lives submissive to his father. And last in Acts 4, Jesus faithfully submitted to suffering and sin-bearing crucifixion in submission to the father. This comes up in one of the prayers of the early church that it was the Father's predetermined plan by which Jesus submitted himself to crucifixion on the cross. God's purpose, God's predestined purpose to occur. So at the end of the day, what we really see is Sarah's submission to Abraham didn't make her less important. It was a display of godly, Christ-like faithfulness in submission. For me, I love the aspect, I love seeing the imagery 
the seed of the woman, a woman who can't get pregnant, does, part of God's plan, foreshadows Christ. Those are sort of once-in-a-world once history type events. This thing, Sarah's faithfulness in submission, that's a lesson you and I can live every day. And in fact, it's a, it's a challenging one. It goes absolutely against the grain. Our, our proud humanity wants to call things our own way. But Sarah's faith in submission models Jesus' faith in submission. And that's the thing that for me is most challenging. Am I entertaining? Am I holding? Am I cultivating a kind of humility that allows me to be faithful in submission when I'm not calling the shots, when somebody else is in charge? That could be paying taxes. It could be submitting to employers. It could be respecting teachers. This could go all over the place. This, for me, is the example that Sarah leaves that's most challenging and I think for most of us most applicable. So with that, worship team's going to come up. And would you stand? And we'll read this together. This is from Psalm 113. And we'll read that and let the worship team get us going here. Did I do that or did you guys turn that off? Psalm 113, is it on? It's just off for me. Okay. Well, let me get out of the way, and we'll read this together. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children, Praise the Lord.